We're in a four-week sermon series right now called The Urban Churches of Acts. And um, this is a kind of a, a break, sort of, sort of a break from our very long sermon series that we've been in called Church Without Walls, which is, would you agree, a fairly meticulous study of the book of Acts, uh, which is good, right? Is that good? Yeah, I've been loving it. Uh, but what we decided to do is to take a four-week break and to zero in on four different churches, four different cities that we encounter in the book of Acts. Because um, here's what happens. Uh, when you read through Acts, it can seem like everything is just amazing for the early church. Like, everything's just going gangbusters, the, the, the missionaries show up, Paul shows up, preaches the gospel, people are converted, new churches are established, the world is turned upside down. It's amazing. But it's not until you start to look more closely at these churches, when you start to read Paul's letters to these churches, that you begin to realize these were a bunch of messed up people. They had issues. Uh, this was not... Uh, quick and easy. This was hard work. And so what we, what we want to do and what Pastor Michael started last week with the church in Philippi and I'll continue today with the church uh, in Corinth, what we want to do is look at the context of these early churches. We want to see where did these first Jesus followers from all around the world, where did they come from? What shaped them? Who were they? What were their early churches like? What were the issues that they faced? And then, how did they respond? How did the gospel get fleshed out in their context? Our hunch is that we have something to learn from these early urban churches. Those of you who were here last week, do you think we had something to learn from the church in Philippi? Yeah, I think that we have something significant to learn today from the church in, in Corinth. Uh, we're going to be spending most of our time in the book of 1 Corinthians. No, no slides this morning with scripture verses on them, so just go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Corinthians because you're going to want to be flipping all around uh, in, in that book here in just a minute. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to talk a little bit longer than I normally would about some of the historical, cultural context. Uh, so those of you who like that kind of stuff, you're going to dig it. Those of you who don't, just hang in there with me, okay, for a few minutes. I think it's important because we want to understand, again, where did these people come from? What were their lives about? What influenced their thinking, their behavior? Because that's going to become really important the second half of the sermon when we dig into 1 Corinthians and we try to get an idea of what Paul was trying to communicate, what big ideas Paul was trying to communicate to these very specific people who came from a very specific place, okay? Does that make sense? That's what we're going to do. Thank you, Tabitha. That's what we're going to do today. All right, so let's, let's, just, let's just jump right into it, uh, starting with, uh, uh, with, the, with the, the, the city of Corinth. Um, and and let, me, let me do this first. Let me read to you, because we don't have time to read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Let me read to you a couple verses from chapter 3 um, that give you kind of a sense of the tone of this letter. Paul's tone when he wrote this letter, okay? And just try to pick up on his emotions as I read these few verses. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 18 through 20. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, 
mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere human beings? Verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. What what would you say is the tone of Paul's language here? Huh? Scolding? That's good. I hadn't thought of that word. That's good. You think you know it all, but you don't know anything. That's good. What else? A little louder. Reprimand. Yeah, they're in trouble maybe. Anything else? Still wet behind the ears? Sarcastic a little bit? A little frustrated? A little confrontational? I think he's even a little angry. I think he's even a little bit angry. Uh, And you pick up on this tone throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so my question coming at this text this morning is, why? Why was Paul, who, who clearly loved these people, he spent a lot of time with them. He'd sacrificed for, for them. He'd been through a lot for them. He had, he had sweat, toiled for these folks. Why was this letter so confrontational? Why was he angry? Why was he frustrated? Why was he maybe even a little sarcastic? You think you're wise. You think you know so much. And, and then the question I'd like us to leave hovering in the air is how would Paul's tone sound to us? If Paul were to write a letter to the church in Logan Square in 2009, what would the tone be? I'll just leave that hanging there for you. Let's talk about Corinth. Let's talk about Corinth. Let's put up the, the, this map of Corinth so you can get an idea of where it is. You see there on the bottom left, modern-day Greece. Corinth was established uh, in the 6th century B.C. as a Greek city-state. And you can tell by its location uh, why it was important. Let's go to the next slide. Here's a picture, and it's a little hard to tell, but you're, you're looking at the isthmus of Corinth. To the left you see water, and to the right you see water. This is why this city was so strategically important, because it was situated right in the middle of that isthmus. So it controlled both the sea routes and the land routes. Do you see that? The quickest way to get from point A to point B was to dock in Corinth, transport your cargo through the city, and then put it back on another ship. Do you see that? Incredibly strategically valuable this this city was. Uh, Next slide. Around the 6th century, they actually built a road. It's still there today. This road uh, cuts through the city from one port to the next. The road exists to this day. Uh, And again, this was just the city enhancing their strategic value, their commercial value. Uh, Literally, people from all over the world would come to Corinth because of of its location. Next slide. This is called the Acrocorinth. This is a mountain, an 1,800-foot mountain that is situated on the isthmus and overlooks the city of Corinth. This provided natural defense for the city. Another reason why this, 
this city, but why the geography of it made it so, so desirable. This city also had uh, three springs. Now, this is important. <laughs> Think about it. This is important because in the ancient world, plumbing was a little complicated, right? So three springs in this city allowed the merchants, allowed store owners to actually have running water, fresh water. Next slide. Who knows what these are? No, not aqueducts. Someone just say it loud. Toilets. I think it's kind of funny, but, but it, it serves a purpose to show you that there's, there's running water in this city. This is a fairly, I mean, if I'm living in the ancient world, you know, I, I'd like to live where there's running water. It's just me. Maybe you'd be okay without having toilets, but okay, that's, that's all the slides that I have. I think, yes, okay. I hope this gives you a sense of why this city was so important. Uh, after, the, after the Greek empire kind of receded, the Romans came into power, they took over Corinth, they destroyed it, but then very quickly they realized this, has, this city has significant value. So they rebuilt it, and Julius Caesar in 27 BC actually made it the provincial capital of that area of the Roman Empire. So Julius Caesar himself said, this, this, this place, this city is incredibly important. I'm going to make it my provincial capital. The city, after it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar, grew very, very rapidly. This was the place that you came if you wanted to get rich. If, if, you, if you were looking for a quick dollar, if you wanted to start a business, if you wanted to get in on the action, you came to Corinth because well, everything had to go through Corinth. Everything had to pass through Corinth. So if you wanted a piece of the action, a piece of the pie, you came to Corinth. The city was known for its Roman law and Roman culture, but because of its Greek heritage, it was highly dominated by Greek philosophy, by the Greek arts, and by Greek culture as well. Because of its location, though, the whole world passed through Corinth, and so there were religious cults from as far away as Egypt, and Asia. I mean, this was as pluralistic, as diverse a city as you can imagine in the ancient world. 100 to 200,000 citizens. Most of them were artisans, people who worked with their hands. There were some slaves. There was a small uh, uh, upper class. Artisan philosophers came to the city looking for patrons, people with enough money to support them. You artists can understand that probably. This city was highly spiritual and highly sexualized at the same time. Highly spiritual and highly sexualized. Scholars will say that there were at least 26 different sacred spaces, religious cults, spiritual places in the city of Corinth. That slide I showed you before of the Acro Corinth, the the mountain. On the top of that mountain, that 1,800-foot mountain, looking down into the city was a temple to Aphrodite. Who is Aphrodite? Greek goddess of love. Interestingly enough, uh, this temple was serviced by prostitutes. Uh, Ancient scholars say there were thousands of temple prostitutes at this temple at the top of the city, looking down onto the city. Highly sexualized, highly spiritual city. Uh, Every other year, uh, these games were held, the Isthmian Games, sort of an Olympic-style games where pilgrims came from all over the world, all over the known world, to participate in these games nearby Corinth. These games honored the god Poseidon, god of the sea. Wow, you guys are good. All right. I had to look some of that stuff up. 
highly spiritual city, just the air crackling with spirituality of a variety of different kinds. Highly sexualized. I already mentioned uh, the the, uh, uh, temple to Aphrodite. Um, Seaport towns often have a a reputation for sexual deviance, right? And that was the case in Corinth. In fact, there was a phrase in the ancient world, to Corinthianize, meant to engage in illicit sexual behavior. So think if, you know, you live in Corinth, like that's your city's reputation around the world. You were out Corinthianizing last night, you know, or you're a Corinthianizer. This is what the city was, was known for. Uh, One scholar puts it this way, Gordon Fee. He says, all the evidence suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. The center of commerce, of business, of economics. The center of entertainment, philosophy. The center of pleasure of all kinds. What happens in Corinth? (laughs) Right? You kind of get the idea here? The whole world passed through Corinth. So let me read to you a a little bit about the early church's founding from the book of Acts, chapter 18. I'm just going to read a little bit because we'll get back to this in our sermon series on Acts. 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Uh, Verse 4. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, Verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one is going to attack you because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of the Lord. A couple things about the early church in Corinth. It started in a synagogue, very quickly moved into a non-Jew's home that was close to the synagogue. So the church in Corinth starts in someone's house. Uh, Paul has a little bit of help, not much. He has a little bit of help from a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They're refugees from Rome. They're entrepreneurs, kind of like Paul is, and they help Paul establish this early church. So picture this, this massive city, center of commerce, entertainment, philosophy, massive city, tiny, tiny, tiny little church. Literally a handful of people, some Jews, some Greeks, meeting in someone's house with Paul and this refugee couple from Rome trying to lead and establish this early church. Do you have that picture in your mind? And Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months. This is significant because this is the longest that Paul stayed in any city except for when he was in Ephesus. Quick commercial plug. Sandra, next week, preaching from Ephesus. Come back, find out why Paul stayed longer in Ephesus than in Corinth. (laughs) Why does Paul stay so long in Corinth? Tiny little church, meeting in a house. I think Paul was convinced of the strategic value of this city. Paul understood that if a church could be established that demonstrated and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, that gospel couldn't help but literally be spread around the world, right? Because the whole world came through Corinth. So if there was a gospel-centered kingdom of God proclaiming and demonstrating church, that was going to be exported around the world. 
Why did Paul stay so long? Because he understood that the gospel would spread like wildfire from Corinth. And I have to imagine Paul's question, the thing that kept him up at night was, what kind of gospel are we going to export? Because whatever is established in Corinth is going to spread around the world. Whatever we teach, whatever we preach, however we live together, that's what's going to be spread around the world. Which I think begins to get at our first question of why Paul was a little bit angry. This church um, was started by people with very little memory of God. Now, some of the early churches, and we've seen this already, were were founded around a core group of Jewish Christians, people who had a long history of following God, the God of the Old Testament scriptures, who had a long memory of what God had done for them, how God had been active in the world, how God had been on a rescue mission from the very beginning to call all people to himself. Many of the churches were founded by people who had that kind of memory. The church in Corinth, Paul says, no. The church in Corinth is founded by people, is, 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 is established by people who have no memory of this God. They're coming from uh, wildly different places, wildly different ethnic uh, uh, groups, wildly different uh, religious persuasions and traditions different philosophies, different ways of life. They've all been thrown together in Corinth for whatever reason. And these are the people who are starting this church. They have little to no memory of the God of the Bible. Do you you see that? This is important. This is going to be really important. Let me show you how this plays out for us at New Community. Um, I can have, I have had conversations with folks in our church about sexuality. And I I can have a conversation with one person who is making decisions that they know are wrong. There's no question. They understand that the, the decisions they're making about their sexuality are opposed to the way of Jesus, are ultimately about gratifying themselves or abusing someone else. They're clear about that. But they're still choosing to make that decision. Call that rebellion, maybe? Just willful sin. I can relate to that. Anybody else ever been there? Willful sin. I'm just choosing to do wrong for whatever reason. I can have a very similar conversation with someone engaging in very similar behavior, but who has no recollection of God. Who doesn't come from a place of having been brought up in a church, brought up in any kind of Christian tradition, have any memory of what it means to live in the way of Jesus. And this person can make, be making the same decisions, and their question can be, is this, is this wrong? Why is this wrong? This isn't what I've, ex- why would, why that now I'm a Christian, why is it, do you understand, do you see what I'm saying? Same behavior coming from radically different places. The church in Corinth fits this latter example. These are people whose behaviors are not always willful, rebellious sin. They're frankly coming from a place where they have no memory of who God is or what God is about. I imagine some of us can relate to that. 
Some of us come to, to church, come to this Christian story, come to the Jesus story, and we go, this is amazing. But man, the way you people talk is weird. The stories you tell, I don't get those names from the Old Testament, those stories, I don't know anything about that. Right? You're coming from almost a, 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 a fresh start. And that's where the church in Corinth is coming from. And watch why this becomes very, very important. It's not surprising to us that these folks have issues, right? Given everything I've told you about this city, given what I've told you about where these, these individuals and families come from, it should be no surprise that they have, let's call them, issues. Let me uh, point out two that are very prevalent in the book of Acts to you. Turn to, Act, or to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 11 verse 18. And I'm going to read 18 and then 20 through 22. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private supper. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. You a little upset, you think? A little frustrated? Class divisions are being dragged into the church. Ethnic, racial, class divisions are prevalent in Corinth, just like they are in our city today. Right? People are used to there being a separation between the upper crust, the middle class, the lower class, the slaves, the philosophers, the artists. They're used to these kinds of divisions. And Paul says, you're dragging it into the church. Paul says there's no difference between what happens outside of the church and what's happening inside of the church. Class divisions. One example of the issues faced by the church in Corinth. There's another one that pops up over and over again. Turn to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man has his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? This is some kind of form of incest. Uh, chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are member of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two will become one flesh. Prostitution. And maybe not too surprising given where these folks are coming from. Prostitution is often associated with spirituality. Uh, And then, interesting, look at 7, verses 2 through 5. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Husbands, don't sleep with anybody but your wife. Wife, only sleep with your husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. So Paul's saying like, have sex with each other, husbands and wives. Some people apparently need that instruction. Verse 4. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let's not spend too much time on this. Let's just agree that these folks had some sexual issues. They were sleeping with people they shouldn't have slept with, and they weren't sleeping with people they should have slept with. (laughs) We can't relate to that at all, I'm sure. Is this what Paul's angry about? Is Paul angry about class divisions? Is he angry that some people are getting drunk while some people are going hungry? Is he angry that a guy is sleeping with his stepmom? Probably a little bit. But again, let's go back to what we talked about before. If, If these folks were willfully engaging in rebellious, sinful behavior that they were convinced was opposed to the way of Jesus, then probably Paul would be ticked at their behavior. You people know better. You know what God has been up to throughout history? You know what Jesus has done for you? You know the kind of radical life that he has called you to? You know that you are new creations? Sometimes that's how we need to talk about sin, right? We just need, we need to be angry about sin. We need to despise our sin. But I think in this case, it's a little bigger than that. I'm not sure that Paul is simply angry at their behavior. I think there's something else. I think there's another level here. Let me use this this phrase, cultural worldview. And and what I mean by that is just a way of understanding reality, a way of interpreting your world, your cultural worldview, how you make sense of the world around you. This is what I think Paul is getting at. Because, again, we already covered this, but these behaviors, these ways of thinking were natural for these folks. This is where they came from. Paul calls these folks a bunch of pagans. He says, this is what you came from. This is who you are. This is your background. This is your story. Some of the folks we learn in this church are denying the bodily resurrection. This is not some esoteric piece of theology. This is central to the Christian life. People in the Corinthian church are saying that whole resurrection of the body thing, that whole, that whole deal that, after, that when Jesus comes back, we're going to be raised and we're going to have flesh. No way. Not going to happen. Another hint that Paul is more angry at the worldview than the behavior. Throughout the book, Paul gets at their pursuit of wisdom. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. And the idea was to to pursue wisdom, to become wise, to find the secret knowledge that would save you. And so it seems that this early church was using Jesus as a way to find the secret knowledge that would save them. Now, again, hang hang with me here for a second. This is going to seem a little out there maybe, but I, I, I I want to talk a little bit about what their worldview may have been. Can, can you hang in there just for a minute with this? Uh, scholars will say that the Roman Empire was dominated by a cultural worldview known as dualism or Gnosticism. 
Um, and even though Corinth was a place that was made up of people who came from all over the world, who had radically different philosophies, religious persuasions, experience, there was a dominant culture that influenced how people thought and behaved. I, I would make the argument that our city is similar to that. That though we come from different places, that though we have different uh, 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 religious traditions, that we have different ethnic traditions, that we come from different stories that we tell about our history, there is dominant American culture that still gives us a, a way of looking at the world. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. So let me, let me tell you a few things about this dualistic way of looking at the world. First, people thought that the physical world was evil, was bad. Material, flesh, anything you could touch, get your hands dirty in, evil, bad. So the result of this then was that the body could either be indulged or denied. It didn't matter because the physical body doesn't matter. So I could either deny my body, starve it, or I could indulge it with any pleasure I wanted to. Because ultimately it just does it, the physical body. What matters is the spiritual Second thing, salvation is to be found through the pursuit of the secret wisdom, through Sophia. What does that mean? It means that there's no God necessary for salvation. It means that you and I are capable of rescuing, saving, liberating ourselves. We don't need a God. All we need is to find the secret wisdom. Third thing, strategy for survival in this life is to escape from everything except ourselves. We need to distance ourselves from everything except the essence of who our self is. What does that mean? It means that I am elevated, I am more important than anybody else. Again, we can't relate to that at all, can we? It means that community, life in community, time with other people is downplayed, is not that important. Fourth thing, knowing wisdom is what sets you apart from the ordinary things of life. Once you attain wisdom, you don't have to, to bother with the ordinary things of life, like hard work, like meals with your friends. Those things, second rate, not important. You're now elite in your knowledge of this wisdom. And finally, anything is appropriate to pursue this way of life. Nobody can tell you what to do or what not to do. Nothing can get in the way of your pursuit of this secret wisdom. It's up to you to find it. There's no authority. There's no one who can tell you what you should do and shouldn't do. We're so much more advanced than that, right? We've progressed so far. What's the result of this? That there can be no particular way of salvation. Jesus, maybe he's a guide. Maybe he's a door to the wisdom. But Jesus can't be the way of salvation. That's up to you to figure out. This worldview seeps out through the letter of 1 Corinthians over and over and over again. So is Paul angry at their behavior? He's not happy about it, but I don't think that's the essence of it. Is Paul angry at their cultural worldview? Again, I don't think that's quite it either. Because later in the letter, Paul says, look, we, I'm not really concerned about people who aren't Christians who are living this way because they don't proclaim the name of Jesus. So why would we expect anything different from those folks? Now, this is important. This is important because some of us grew up in churches where what was talked about was list of sins 
list of certain behaviors that you didn't do. Anybody relate to that besides me? Here's what it's about. You just don't do these things and you're good to go. Then you're really a Christian if you avoid these sins, if you abstain from these behaviors. That's not what Paul's doing. Others of us have had an experience where a certain worldview is called out and demonized, right? In our modern world, it's, it's the issue of relativism. It's atheism. It's humanism. It's something else-ism. That becomes, that becomes the boogeyman. That's been some of our experiences. If we could just defeat that, then, then we'd be okay. And that's not what Paul does either. He doesn't try to convince the whole city of Corinth that their cultural worldview is wrong. What is then the crux? What is the crux for Paul? Let me put it this way. The sinful behavior of the Corinthian church, their actions, class division, sexual immorality, the sinful behavior springs from a certain cultural worldview. It comes from somewhere. And this cultural worldview is opposed to the gospel of Jesus. Can you turn to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2? I want you to watch how Paul says this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise, Paul says... You have believed in vain. Paul's not standing there saying, here's the list of the do's and the don'ts. Here's the behaviors you need to stay away from. Paul doesn't stand up in front of the whole city of Corinth and say, you need to reject this one cultural worldview. What does Paul say? He says, fundamentally, the worldview that's shaping your behavior, church, is opposed to the way of Jesus. Flip back to chapter 1, verses 22. Did I tell you you'd be flipping around a lot? Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Okay, that's the worldview. That's their worldview. This is what they're about. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Key, listen. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying the the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus is fundamentally opposed to your cultural worldview. The way you understand the world to work contradicts the reality of the gospel. The Corinthian church... The Corinthian church thought that they could add Jesus to their previous way of life. The Corinthian church thought that they could add the gospel to their previous worldview and then just keep going. I'll take a little bit of Jesus with my Gnosticism, please. I'll take a little bit of Jesus with my dualism. That way I can keep on living like I lived before. Do we, do we do this? 
I, I polled, I polled uh, some friends at, at staff dinner on Friday night. I said, help me out here. I kind of explained this dualism thing. I said, what is, the, what is our dualism? What is our Gnosticism today? One that I thought of uh, is consumerism. And that's kind of cheating because that was the focus of our conference here a few weeks ago. But I would argue that consumerism is a cultural worldview that dominates a lot of our, our society today. That we look at each other by our spending power, by our buying power. We, we label one another by the brands that we wear. We commodify one another. Um, Pastor Michael suggested that nationalism, for some of us, is the set of, of cultural worldview lenses that we look through. That we have this sense that our nation or our people or our ethnic tradition is somehow favored, somehow given more status. Which of course leads to pride, to arrogance, I would say to violence. Juan Kim suggested, he said it's, it's not something that we talk about all that much anymore, but humanism. Humanism is a, is a set of lenses that we look through that says, hey, we have ultimate potential. Humanity, we can go as far as we want to go. We can do whatever we want to do if we just put our minds to it. Unlimited good. Sin, whatever. Evil, whatever. What does this lead to? Well, if you're not contributing, we're going to leave you behind. If you're weak, mm, we're going to cut you out. If we don't think that you're going to fit for this grand plan of humanity, we don't really have time for you. If we took time, we could think of of more of these. This isn't a philosophy lesson. I'm the wrong person to teach that. But the reality is that you and I, just like the Corinthian church, we bring with us into this building. We bring with us into our relationship with one another, into our worship. We bring with us a set of lenses through which we experience the world. Do you agree? And how does then, how does Paul confront? I'm going to end with this. How did Paul confront them? He talks about the resurrection. He talks about the resurrection because here's the deal. A worldview that allows for class divisions and sexual immorality cannot coexist with a view of reality where the Son of God took on flesh, lived among people, ate, drank, slept, was crucified, and then was resurrected in the body. Those two worldviews just simply cannot coexist. So what does Paul do? Paul points to the resurrection. Back to chapter 15. Go back to chapter 15, verses 12 and following. But if, he, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember I said earlier, some are saying there's no such thing as resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even... Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, look, if this is your worldview, if there's no such thing as resurrection of the body, then guess what? Jesus didn't resurrect. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those 
also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all others. Paul says, look, the way you're living betrays a certain worldview. And that worldview, Paul says, is fundamentally opposed to the gospel of Jesus. Your behaviors show what you believe, and what you believe contradicts the resurrection of Jesus. The Corinthian heir, like I said before, was believing they could just take some elements of Christianity. They could just add some elements of Jesus to their previous way of life and keep going. Does the way you understand reality contradict the resurrection of Jesus? Really, really. Does the way you look at the world, does the way you experience the world, does the way you engage with the world, does it align with the fact that the Son of God rose from the dead? Or do your behaviors, do my behaviors betray a belief that is in fact opposed to the gospel? This is why Paul is ticked because he doesn't want that kind of gospel being exported around the world. He doesn't want a gospel that says, just add a little bit of Jesus to whatever you were doing before and you'll be good to go. The gospel that Paul proclaimed is a gospel that turns your life inside out. A gospel that calls everything into submission to the lordship of Jesus. And so let me ask this, is your sinful behavior, is my sinful behavior, is it willful rebellion or is it a natural outflow of what you and I actually believe? Here's the good news. Here's the good news. Paul shows that Jesus didn't simply come to save us from our sins, pat us on our back and wish us well. Worship team, you can come forward. The death and the resurrection of Jesus, listen, the death and the resurrection of Jesus replaces our shallow, our self-centered, our bankrupt views of of reality and replaces them with a coming kingdom of God with a resurrected son of God at the very center of all things. The gospel, listen, the gospel reality frees us to pursue justice and mercy The gospel reality, the reality of the kingdom of God frees us to pursue justice and mercy, frees you and me to love other people more than we love ourselves. The gospel reality, the reality of the kingdom of God frees you to create beauty, to create art that reflects the goodness of the creator. The reality of the gospel allows us to get our hands dirty allows us to plant vegetables, to eat good food with one another, to point to something beautiful in our lives. Consumerism and humanism and dualism and Gnosticism and nationalism and legalism, all of these fade, all of these fade when confronted with a gospel reality where the lives of men and women have been healed by the resurrected Jesus. Paul is angry. Paul is ticked 
Because the gospel is way more than an addition to what we previously believed, how we previously lived. The resurrection of Jesus absolutely changes everything. Has the resurrection of Jesus changed everything for you? Has Jesus Christ, Son of God, risen from the dead, standing at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, returning again one day to set all things right, changed your reality? Or have you simply added Jesus to your previous way of thinking, to your previous way of life, to your previous actions? The good news is that Jesus Christ came more than just to save us from our sins and wish us well. He came to change our reality. Has he? Have you let Jesus literally take off the glasses, the lenses of your own, of your old reality, of your old worldview, of your old shallow, bankrupt way of looking at the world and replace them with something so much better? Let's pray. We imagine this church, this small church meeting in someone's home. We imagine all of the baggage they bring with them, all of their ways of understanding the world, all of their sin. We imagine them struggling with this idea of a resurrected Jesus. How can this be? We imagine Paul wrestling, sweating, arguing, loving, pleading, praying with this early church. Do you not see? Do you not see that everything must change because Jesus has resurrected from the dead? That everything must change because sin and evil and death has been defeated. Do you not see? Do you not see it? How can you continue to live this way? We see this, we imagine it, and we're seeing ourselves. This is our story. Paul says, remember what you were. Remember what you came from. Remember your previous way of life. And we can remember. We know what we were. We know where we came from. Paul says, has it all been submitted? Has everything been submitted to the lordship of Jesus? Or have you just added him to your previous way of life? Church, the good news, the gospel message for you and for me today is that Jesus changes everything. And the good news for those who, who are, who are uh, struggling and fighting with the same sins over and over again is that Jesus doesn't want to just change your behavior. He wants to change your entire reality. He wants to give you a new view of reality from whence can spring forth love and mercy and justice and beauty and grace. He doesn't want to just clean up the surface. He wants to get to the very heart of who you and I are and give us a new way of being. In Christ, you are a new creation. And so, Lord Jesus, that is our prayer today. You've done this work. It's been accomplished. Holy Spirit, would you continue to perfect this work in our lives? Continue to transform us into the new creations that you have made us to be. We pray these things. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our resurrected Savior. Amen. It's not hard for me to imagine Paul writing uh, these words to our church. From the first chapter, brothers and sisters, 
Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Live this week as children of God who have been redeemed. We'll see you next week.